Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. We uh, are launching this study in the Gospel according to Mark. And uh, last Sunday was the introduction, so we were just looking at some content that was important to our understanding of this gospel. Let me just remind you that Mark is the earliest gospel. It was the first one written. That opinion had changed. It had changed to that opinion about 150 years ago. So for many centuries, the church did not particularly study Mark as much as the other Gospels because they thought Mark abbreviated Matthew and Luke. And uh, then they came to understand, actually it's the other way around, Mark wrote his Gospel first, Matthew and Luke expanded on Mark's content, added the genealogy, added many of the sermons and discourses, and so on. And Mark, although he was not a follower of Jesus Christ to begin with, even during the Lord's time on earth, he became a believer and was mentored by the Apostle Peter. And most of the information that Mark gives us came from Peter. So this is Peter's gospel, in a sense. It was called by the, some of the church fathers as the memoirs of Peter, the gospel of Mark. So... With that little bit of background, we're going to jump into the prologue, the introduction to this gospel. Verses 1 to 13, not going to cover the entire text this morning, just verses 1 to 6. But I want to read verses 1 to 13. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. And were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And as he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, 
and the angels were ministering to him. That's the introduction to the book that introduces us to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. It gives us preliminary information that helps to guide us in our understanding of the rest of the gospel. The focus of the introduction is really on Jesus Christ, though it begins with the ministry of John the Baptist. So that's the beginning of the gospel. So let's look at this. First of all, in verse 1, the gospel is all about Jesus Christ, but he talks about the beginning of it. And the beginning has to do with the ministry of John the Baptist. This is how the story of Jesus unfolds in the New Testament. It unfolds with somebody, a prophet, that was sent before him by just a very short time as his forerunner, the one who was going to prepare the people for when Jesus came on the scene and began his public ministry. But just notice the language of Mark, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's break that down and look at what's here. So the beginning of the gospel. He says it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word gospel is a word that we've all heard. Actually, the old English word from which gospel comes is God spell. That's what they used it. That's how they described it many centuries ago. God spell, meaning God's story. So that's the English idea of gospel, but the original word here that's in the New Testament for gospel means good news, glad tidings, something to get excited about and be happy about and to shout on the rooftops. That's the gospel. In fact, we come across it in the Old Testament as you anticipated the gospel's revelation in Jesus Christ, back 700 years before Jesus came on the scene, it says in Isaiah 52 and verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. It's a message of salvation. This is what makes it Good news. It's a message of peace. The rest of the Bible, the New Testament unfolds that for us. Peace with God. Peace through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then when Jesus was born, in Luke chapter 2, recording it, the angel said to the shepherds that were watching their flock that night, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So that's the idea of gospel. We need to keep that in mind as we were reading about good news here. This is the best news the human uh, population has ever heard. What's recorded in the Bible. But notice who it's about. It's about Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we could say it's the one that he preached, but the meaning here means it's about him. That's the sense in which it's the good news. It's good news because it's about him. 
Because of who he is, what he did, he gives it the quality of being good news versus something that's just news or bad news. It's good news because of Jesus. Now, here we have the compound name of Jesus put with Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Some people think they're saying his last name when they say Christ. No, the word Christ actually is a title for his office as Messiah. This is the New Testament form of the Old Testament word for Messiah. It's Jesus Messiah, Jesus the Messiah. Now, his first name, Jesus, means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. And that depicts the nature of his work, what he was going to do when he came into this world. Joseph was told when he wanted to divorce Mary, when he found out she was pregnant and he knew he was not the father, he was ready to put her away until the angel came to Joseph in a dream and told him, Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. That which is conceived in her is conceived of the Holy Spirit. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. So here is the reason why he was given the name Jesus. Jesus is actually a very popular name. The old the uh, Jewish historian Josephus, he records about 20 different Jesuses in his history. So this one, the main one of human history, the great one, is Jesus the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. There's different ways the Bible distinguishes him to distinguish him from the other people who had the same common name in the first century. So Jesus indicates his work. He's going to accomplish a work of salvation. This is why he was given that name. Christ is the word for Messiah, which means he's the anointed one. That's the idea of, the, of Christ. The one who was anointed by God, he was commissioned by God, given the task of being the Savior. So it means he has God's blessing, he has God's authorization, he's appointed by God to this work. He didn't appoint himself, he is commissioned by God. And we're going to see later that he had the Spirit of God come upon him at his baptism, and this was his anointing for his public ministry, when he was empowered and enabled for his work by the Holy Spirit. So the gospel of Jesus Christ, the beginning of the gospel. And then notice what is added to his name. And this is very, very important. He's called the Son of God. Now Christians are called sons and daughters of God, but... It's come in a completely different sense than when this title is given to Jesus. We are sons and daughters of God by adoption. But Jesus is a son of God by nature. So when the Bible uses that term and applies it to him, it's telling us that he is God the Son. That he shares the same nature as the Father. In other words, that Jesus is God. He is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. 
very important. In the book of John that we covered several years ago, going through the gospel according to John, in chapter 5, Jesus uh, had his religious enemies rise up against him, and they wanted to put him to death. And John himself gives an interesting interpretation of why they wanted to kill Jesus in John chapter 5 and verse 18. He says this, this is why the Jews were asking, excuse me, were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So when Jesus claimed to be God the Son or the Son of God, he was claiming equality with God. Now, it's an amazing thing. You just stop about that. Because there's some people who say, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, he did claim to be God. And this is why the Jewish people rose up against him. The religious leaders, not the common people, they accepted his ministry. Many followed him. But they opposed him and were not satisfied until they had silenced him in death. So this is an important term that's used for the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God. I want to add one thing about him being God. It's the fact that he was the Son of God that made his death so effective in wiping out sin and taking care of the sin problem. This is, this is an important connection we need to make theologically. The reason why... His atonement on the cross that he suffered for six hours about, six to nine hours on the cross, was able to wipe out the guilt of a multitude of people, reinstate their relationship to God so that they could be cleansed of their, all their guilt and never face punishment in the future. The reason why his one sacrifice could do that was because he was the Son of God. His divine nature imparted a value and a power to his work that a mere man dying in my place would not have done it. But him being the Son of God, that puts it his death on a whole other level of effect and power and worth and value in God's eyes. So that's an important point theologically I want to just underscore. So the beginning of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, in verses 2 to 3, Mark is going to tell us that the gospel is a fulfillment of the Old Testament predictions. So when we talk about the Old Testament, we're talking about a section of the Bible, a very large section of the Bible that ends 400 years before Jesus was born. And it covered many, many centuries. So, there's predictions by the prophets concerning this person that was going to come on the scene before Jesus. And he's known in our understanding of the story of the Lord Jesus Christ as John the Baptist, that's who he 
is called John the one. He's not the first Baptist. Don't, don't make that connection. Or he's not the one who started the Baptist church. Yeah. But he's John, the one who immersed people in water. That's what baptism is. So he said John the baptizer, John the immerser, John the one who dipped people in water. Notice verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, 7, 8th century B.C. 8th century B.C. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. Now, what is, this is found in Isaiah chapter 40. This is about the forerunner to the Messiah. And it is said there, he's going to prepare the way for Yahweh. He's going to prepare the way for God to come. Well, again, this is underscoring the fact that the Messiah, Jesus, is a divine person. This is Yahweh who is coming into the world, who is intervening in human history in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now all, the, all four Gospels quote this, Isaiah 40 verse 3. Mark also adds Malachi 3.1 to it. Which actually is the beginning. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. That's Malachi 3.1. And then the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make his paths straight. That's Isaiah 40, verse 3. So Mark has combined two Old Testament scriptures. He emphasizes the Isaiah passage first. So this is referring to the one who announces the coming of God himself, coming in salvation. Prepare his way. Now we're not told here about the preparation so much as when the prophets talk about it, they talk about making the road smooth, um, clearing the, the obstacles are in the way that are on this path. Yahweh is coming. He's going to be coming into the world, clear away the, the obstacles in the, in the path that are in his way, make his paths straight, as it says here. Isaiah 40, verse 3. Well, this is the preparation of the way, for the way of the Lord. You might just say something about the way of the Lord. Because I think that's a phrase that actually is further developed in the New Testament because Christians were followers of the way in the book of Acts. Several times it says they were followers of the way. Well, who, whose way? Uh, the way of Christ. The Lord's way. The way to correct living, but also the way of salvation. The only way of salvation. 
For there's no other way to be saved. There's no other way to be made right with God except through Jesus. This is the teaching of the Lord Jesus himself when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. He made it very clear. He is the way. So, The beginning of the gospel involves the ministry of John the Baptist. This is how it's always presented. John's ministry came first because he prepares the way. Now we're going to see how he does that. How does John's ministry prepare the way for the Lord? Okay, verses 4 through 6, we see his ministry of preparation. And involves, well, notice he, he's baptizing in the wilderness. Now, the wilderness is a very important place, actually, in the Bible. It's mentioned, wilderness is mentioned four times here in chapter 1 of Mark. The wilderness experience of God's people centuries ago that's recorded in the early chapters of the Bible It was the place where God revealed himself. It was the place where uh, his people were tested. Uh, They needed to be delivered on occasion in the wilderness. There's, There's many things connected to the wilderness idea in the Bible. And here it is, again, connected with John's ministry. He was in the wilderness. That is, he was in the desert. Actually, the Judean desert, very, very barren, uninhabited place north of the Dead Sea, probably along the Jordan Valley, somewhere there. They don't know exactly where, but they have speculated where John's ministry was. Now, the fact that John appeared, see that language in verse 4, John appeared? This actually was a, was a startling event that occurred in Israel's history, because for three or four hundred years, God had been silent. This is how some people speak of the period of time before the closure of the Old Testament with Malachi and the beginning of the New Testament. There's a period of four centuries in there. When God was not speaking through prophets, Israel did not have any messages from God. And then all of a sudden... A voice in the wilderness is crying out. This this was a startling thing, and it got everybody's attention. You notice the text? It says, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to hear him. That's why. This is something new. This has not occurred in a very long time. Now, he was doing something that no doubt took them aback because there's nothing in Israel's practice, religious-wise, that agrees with what John was doing. He was baptizing. Now, there were self-baptisms among the Gentiles who wanted to become Jewish in their beliefs and follow the, the Jewish religion, the Jewish way of life. They would impose a self-baptism kind of a thing as part of the ritual of switching over and converting to Judaism. But here is a man, and he's a prophet, he's God's voice, and he is baptizing people out in the wilderness. 
So the people got to go out there in order to find him where he is. He doesn't go into Jerusalem to do this. He doesn't go where the crowds are. He's out in a barren, desolate place. And the people are going out in droves because he's baptizing in the wilderness. He is baptizing here. Now, I already mentioned the meaning of this word. It would be a little clearer to us if the Bible just simply translated it that he was plunging people in the River Jordan, something like that. Then there'd be no misunderstanding about, well, what is is baptism all about? Because some people think it's sprinkling, others do think it's going underwater, and there's different ideas about it. But that all could have been eliminated if they would have translated it by a clearer English word, like dipping, immersing. John was dipping people in the River Jordan. He was immersing them. The Bible, by that means he the people were going completely under the water. They weren't just getting a little wet. They were being completely dipped in water. But here, notice, it is, he was proclaiming a baptism and then carrying out the baptism of people, but notice it's called a baptism of repentance. And the idea is here is that if you repent and you want to show that you're repenting, you then are baptized in order to show that. So the, the baptism is the evidence or the proof that you're repenting. Now, what does it mean to repent? That's a pretty important thing to think about here for a moment. What is repentance? Well, the simple meaning of this word, it's a compound word, and you put it, the words together, the, the original word, and it means to change one's mind. It means a, to change your mind. So it's a, it's a rational thing. There's something going on in a person's head, in their mind. When you repent, you're making a decision inside your mind about it. Some people describe it as making a, a U-turn. You're going in one direction in life, and you make a U-turn, and now you're going in the opposite direction. So it's a, it's a radical change that's involved with repentance. And it's, it involves a couple of things. It involves turning away from one's sinful practices and turning to God, very simply. Turn Turning toward God in repentance. Turning away from sin. That always includes faith. We need to add that. That in the Bible, faith and repentance are two things that always go together. They're always found together, though they are found together in a few places. Verse 14 um, of Jesus' ministry, verse 15 he, uh, when we get into when Jesus begins his ministry, he, these, this is he, Jesus himself speaking. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So there the Lord Jesus Christ brings both believing and repentance together. In the book of Acts, when Peter preached his great sermon, the 3,000 people were converted He told them, repent and then be baptized, every one of you, 
for the forgiveness of sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there it's just he emphasizes the repentance side of it. Paul summed up his ministry in, in uh, Asia when he spoke to the Ephesian elders, his ministry among them, particularly in Ephesus, there in Turkey, present-day Turkey. Paul was there in Ephesus for three years. And when he called the elders to come, and he was going to talk to them about his uh, about their future, about what his ministry had meant to them and so on. He said that he went, he, he spoke to both the Gentiles and the Jews that were there. He went from house to house and he said he was preaching repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, Acts twenty twenty one. So there they come together, faith and repentance. Every true repentance is going to have faith involved, believing and trusting in God and Christ. Every true expression of faith in Christ, believing in Him, trusting in Him, is going to have repentance as well. Now, what does it mean to repent? Well, I already said to change one's mind. But I want to boil it down like this. Repentance has, think of it like this, three words that all begin with C. Contrition, which means sorrow. There should be sorrow. When there's true repentance, we feel bad about what we've done. It might be shedding tears over it. But there should be some sense of, I feel horrible about this, that I did this. Contrition. Then there needs to be confession. Because notice it's it goes on that they were confessing their sins in verse 5. That was an aspect. That's how John knew that they were repenting there. That's all, one, that's all we know is when somebody actually confesses their sin. We can't read the contrition part in their heart. So these things that I'm saying are for us to like evaluate whether or not we've ever repented. There needs to be sorrow. And then second, the second C is confession. Confession in the Bible means to say the same thing about our sin that God says. If God says this is a sin, but I, but I try to justify myself and say, you know, I really don't think I did anything very bad. I don't, I'm not going to confess that. We're not on the same page with God. Contrition, confession, and thirdly, change. Change. Those are the three C's of true repentance. I like this little line I heard many years ago. Repentance is to leave the sins we loved before and show that we in earnest grieve by doing so no more. Now the confession part is important. It's an aspect of repentance, but here specifically it comes out in the text that they were confessing their sins. The Bible says, he that covers his sins shall not prosper. This is Proverbs 28, verse 13. He that covers his sins shall not prosper, but whosoever confesses and forsakes his sin shall find mercy. Now there it is in the Old Testament. Proverbs 28, 13. So you got repentance in one of the Proverbs spoken by Solomon. It's pretty amazing. And then, of course, we got the great 
word from the Apostle John in his first letter, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that is the baptism of repentance. And then notice, for the forgiveness of sins. Don't make the the mistake of thinking that if you're baptized in water, that you automatically have your sins forgiven. The Bible nowhere teaches that. That just getting wet is going to remove guilt that's on your soul. No, it's the baptism part is the outward expression. And I'm just talking about John's baptism. This is not Christian baptism. When we're baptized as believers, we're not baptized according to John. That distinction comes out very clearly when Paul went back to Ephesus, or went to Ephesus in Acts 19, and he countered the disciples of John the Baptist. Remember, he had to re-baptize them because they were... They only knew John's baptism, which was one of repentance and so on. They had not yet received the Holy Spirit, so Paul rebaptized them in the name of Jesus. That's Christian baptism. So we're not baptized according to John the Baptist. This was a very unique, special thing that was going on by the forerunner before Messiah appeared. But there are elements that are still the same. The repentance part needs to be there. So it's it's when a person repents that they are forgiven. This is the connection, not just when you're baptized. So, yeah, don't, don't make the mistake of thinking if you were baptized that you're now a forgiven person. You're forgiven if you repent. And the repentance is an ongoing thing. It's not repenting just one time in life. As believers, we are daily repenting. Because we know we fall short of the Lord's perfect, um, His perfection. Daily, we fall short. Now, what is the meaning of forgiveness? I think we should stop for a moment and just ask that. You know what this word means? The original word used here in this passage of Mark 1, it, it is the act of freeing from guilt and punishment. When you are forgiven, you are released. You are released. It's, it's a liberation that occurs. You're released from the guilt and therefore there's no grounds for being punished. That's what it means to be forgiven. That is the nature of God's forgiveness. The cancellation of the guilt, and then no further grounds for punishment. This is good news. This is exactly what humanity needs, is forgiveness. We're in great need. We are sinners before God. And our sins are mounting up every day that we live, and we need to be forgiven before we leave this world. Otherwise, we're in big trouble with God. We need to have our sins blotted out, forgiven. It only comes through the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, just notice how John appeared. It emphasizes this. His clothing and his diet. Why? Because it's making a connection here with the Old Testament prophet Elijah. Because remember, the Old Old Testament closes, the very end of the Old Testament closes with the promise that Elijah is coming before the great day of the Lord. He's going to come, Elijah. Well, this came up in Jesus' ministry And they asked him about this, about Elijah coming. And Jesus said, Elijah has already come, but they didn't know it. And it is explained to us that he came in the person of John the Baptist. John's garment of camel hair and having a big leather belt around his midsection and eating wild honey and locusts. Locusts, by the way, is the only insect that the Old Testament allowed for diet. Book of Leviticus chapter 11, the one insect you could eat was a locust. It had to hop, it had to be able to fly, have four legs. John's eating locusts and wild honey. A great, a great example of wild honey was, uh, remember when Samson killed the, mountain, the lion with his bare hands in the book of Judges? And he left that lion for dead. Sometime later he came back and he saw the carcass of the lion, and, but there was a wild beehive inside that carcass. Samson reached his hand inside. He scooped out some of the honey and ate it. So, wild honey was available in the wilderness. This was John's diet. This connected him with Elijah. This looks like Elijah, because Elijah had a similar dress. He was a rugged reformer, preacher of repentance, preacher of coming judgment. When John was asked if he was Elijah, he said no. That is, he's not a reincarnation of Elijah. The Bible doesn't teach reincarnation, but just in case somebody thought, well, is this Elijah who came back from the dead or is here? He was not Elijah in that sense, but the Bible goes on to say that John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. So this is the introduction of part of the introduction of Mark's gospel. So we have John the Baptist who is sent here to get the nation ready. He is sent to get the nation of Israel ready and prepared for the eventuality of God himself coming to that nation. This was a, the most momentous event in the history of Israel that had been anticipated for centuries, the coming of the Messiah. In order to get ready, they had to repent. And I, there's a sense in which this is still true, though we're not following John the Baptist now. The one who was to come that they were anticipating and expecting, he has come. He's already come. He came 2,000 years ago. We have the record left for us in the New Testament. 
But the demands are still there. We need to believe the gospel. We need to repent. This is how we are prepared to receive the Lord and to experience his great salvation. Clearly, we saw that when we went through the Acts of the Apostles and we saw the ministry of the Apostles in several places to different people groups, different ethnic groups. The message didn't change. It was Christ has risen. He died, but he's risen. They emphasized the resurrection, especially in the preaching in the book of Acts. But it all came to the same head. Repent. Believe the gospel. Have you repented? Are you a believer? This is what is demanded and commanded of us when we hear the good news. May the Lord bless this word today to us. Amen. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.